Hear these words from Luke 2, verses 21 through 38. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, which means salvation, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, which we read a few minutes ago from Leviticus 12, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him before the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts will be revealed. And there was also a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Will you pray with me one more time? Lord God, I pray that you would be with your word as it goes out this morning. Be with me as I preach it. Lord, we are reminded, just as you spoke through Balaam's donkey, Lord, that the messenger of your word is not the thing that is special. You can use anything, including a rebellious prophet's means of transportation. So I pray that as I preach this morning, these would not be my words. I pray that they would be your words. I pray that you would bring them out and through me, and that they would land on the hearts and ears of those gathered here this morning, and that you would use your words to bring about life where there has been death, to bring encouragement where there has been disappointment, to bring about conviction and faith where there has been hardened sin. Use your words for your own glory this morning, we pray. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen. Well, as you can tell, we have continued our Christmas theme this morning, it being December 29th. 
It's still December, Christmas wasn't that many days ago, so we still got the Christmas tree up, we still got the Advent candles lit, even though as far as the Christmas or the Advent season goes, the official church calendar, this is just the awkward Sunday between Christmas and New Year's, but we are still in the Christmas spirit and that's okay. We are concluding this morning, however, our series that we've been going through through, uh, this, through this Advent season, which I've entitled Songs of Hope. We've been going through Luke 1 and 2, looking at the various songs, the various poems that are littered throughout these, the, these passages, some that we are familiar with, some that we perhaps are not, but all songs that look forward to the redemption of God's people, songs that join with the chorus of the Old Testament prophets and saints as they long for redemption, songs that point to the baby who came in the manger. The first two weeks of Advent, the first two weeks of December, we looked at Gabriel's songs, Gabriel's poems. He had one as he, as he announced the birth of John the Baptist to Zechariah, and one as he announced the birth of Jesus to Mary. The last two weeks, we looked at some more popular songs, some more well-known songs. We looked at Mary's Magnificat, her song of praise to the Lord. We looked at Zechariah's Benedictus, his response after his mouth was finally opened after being shut for at least nine months during the, you know, as his wife was pregnant with their son. His first words as he opens his mouth once his son is born is to give praise to God. This Tuesday, this past Christmas Eve, we looked at the songs that the angels sang famously, right? Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to those on who his favor rests. Our final song this morning is perhaps the least known of all of these. A lot of times we, we kind of vacate the Christmas story um, after, after the birth of Jesus. We kind of move on. But there's a song that is sung here. A prayer offered up by this prophet Simeon. We don't hear a lot necessarily about Simeon and Anna, even though there's this huge chunk of, of the birth narrative that they're a part of. You see, for, for, an ancient, for an ancient Jewish person, and even if you're a modern Jewish person today, it wasn't just the birth that you, that you celebrated and were excited about. There was a circumcision to happen after that birth. We, we have this today. We, being good Presbyterians, you know, we, we baptize our children in sort of in place of circumcision. I, when my son was born last year, we actually baptized him. My wife, who's actually preaching at uh, her church today, so be in prayer for her if you would be. But my wife, uh, and, who's a pastor at another church, and I baptized our son right here. But we didn't do it eight days after he was born. We did it a couple months after he was born, and you know, we had to you know, do it while she was on maternity leave and before her parents went, went south for the winter. So that, that, was the, that was the Sunday that we did it. And that's the reason why we scheduled it. It was for those you know, very practical reasons. But if you're a Jewish person and you're going to circumcise your son, you got to do it on the eighth day. That's the day that's prescribed circumcise them on the eighth day, and then there's this whole purification thing, this purification ceremony that, that we describe, or that we read from earlier, right? We read from Leviticus 12, and that Mary and Joseph followed. Sometimes, you know, as we're reading, um, the, there's a birth account in Luke, and there's a birth account in Matthew. It can be hard to figure out 
where they are just because Luke and Matthew are concerned with different details. That doesn't mean that they're at odds with each other, but sometimes, you know, they don't make it easy to figure out what happens when. But during this time, Mary and Joseph and Jesus are likely continuing to stay in Bethlehem at the house where they were. This is probably before, right, the Magi come, the wise men come and offer gifts, because when that happens, they they sort of tell Herod about it, and that triggers some persecution, and Mary and Joseph flee as refugees to the land of Egypt to save Jesus' life. This probably happens before that, because they travel in peace to the temple, many days after he was born. Now, the distance from Bethlehem to Jerusalem wasn't that far. It was about five, six miles, still is about five, six miles today. The cities didn't move apart. You know, from where they were staying, this is a journey that they could do probably in, in a day. You know, wake up, first sunlight, go, you know, get yourself a couple doves, right? They were poor, so they had to catch the doves, right, which is what you would do. That's why, that's why that was in there, because, you know, you had to buy a sheep, but a couple doves you could just go out and catch, you know, hold french fries up in the air and they would come and get it or whatever, whatever they did. You know, get a couple doves and they would go and travel to Jerusalem, make the sacrifice, and then come back. So this is, this is the context. This is what's going on. Mary and Joseph in Bethlehem, before the wise men come, travel up to Jerusalem for the day in order to offer the sacrifice as is commanded in the law of Moses. They don't have the means, they don't have the money to offer up uh, the lamb that was required. So there's, there's an exception for the poor. So they take two doves, two pigeons, and they bring them to the temple to offer them as is required in the law of Moses. And while they're there, they meet a couple characters. Again, we don't talk a lot about Simeon and Anna in church. Maybe you've heard sermons on them before, but if you haven't heard of them, you know, we don't talk a lot about them. But they meet these two people, these two holy people, these two prophets, These two people who had been waiting for years and years and decades for the Messiah that would come. And there's a couple unique things about them that are are written here. Simeon is not just any name. Does anybody know what Simeon is, sort of in in the history of the Bible? Anybody? Simeon's one of the 12 tribes of Israel, Right? Not, not, not one of the ones that you know, right? You know Judah is, you know Benjamin is, you know maybe Ephraim and Manasseh, depending on, you know, how much Bible history you know. But there, there's a few of these tribes that they're just kind of named once or twice, and then we forget about them, right? Zebulon and Naphtali, right? We, you know, they're, they're not first on the list. You have to think about them for a little bit. Simeon's one of those, one of the lesser tribes in the, in the nation of Israel. But this man, Simeon, we don't know what tribe he was from, but You know, when Luke's audience would have heard this, they would have thought, oh, Simeon, like, you know, the tribe of Israel. He's waiting for the Messiah that would come in order to liberate Israel. Anna also as well, in verse 36, there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. Now, now Luke doesn't spend a lot of time telling us what tribe people are from, that you don't see that a lot in the New Testament, but he goes out of his way to tell us what tribe she was from, and she was also from, you know, another one of these also-ran tribes, the tribe of Asher, right? Not going to be the first tribe that you put on a list, but maybe you don't even get that on the list, but she is from that tribe She is also 84 years old. It's quite the life, right? We we can all, you know, hope to be 84 years old someday. Some of us have already attained to that. But whenever a number shows up in the Bible, you have to ask, why is that number there? 
Could it be, is Luke just telling us, you know, random facts about this woman, just, just so you know, she's from the tribe of Asher, she's 84 years old, that's what you have to know about her. Or is there a meaning behind it? Well, there's a meaning behind it. 84 is 12 times 7. I know it's been a while since fourth grade or whenever you learned your times tables, but 84 is 12 times 7. I wouldn't have known this until like, someone mentioned this as I was studying. I would have had to do the math in my head. I went to school for theology and not math. Anyway, 84 is 12 times 7. 12 in the Bible is the number of the people of God, right? 12 tribes of Israel, 12 disciples. You read the book of Revelation, the number 12 shows up symbolizing the people of God all over the place. The number 7, on the other hand, is the number of completion. Exactly. It's the number of fullness. Anna had waited seven years for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Her waiting represents the fullness of the waiting of the tribes of Israel. A year before this, if she was 83, all of that waiting time wouldn't be complete yet because she wouldn't have hit seven twelves. But when Jesus comes, she's 84. All of the fullness of the waiting, the completion of the waiting of the people of God reaches its peak. And these, these two These two witnesses in the temple who have been waiting for the redemption that is to come, symbolizing Israel, they see the baby that comes. Simeon had been told by the Holy Spirit, and I don't don't know in what context this was, whether this was a dream, whether he just knew, whether this happened when he was a little kid, whether this happened, you know, the, the week before this, but Simeon had been told by the Holy Spirit that he would not taste death until he saw the Messiah that was coming. That's a promise, right? That's a promise to grab hold of and, and hold on to. And so Simeon sees himself as a, as a watchman, someone who's posted and waiting for the redemption that's coming. In verse 29, he says, Lord, you are letting your servant depart in peace. And the word Lord there, that's a good translation, but it's not the same word that we see other places in the Bible with the word Lord. The word there actually probably means master. He calls himself a slave, and he calls God his master. He says, Master, I have fulfilled the requirements that you have given to me. I have been posted outside. I have been waiting for this redemption that's coming, and that redemption has finally come. Now I can be relieved from my duties in peace. He had this promise that he was waiting for. He wouldn't taste death until he had seen the Lord's Christ, and until that day, until that day, he was posted, ready, and waiting. They're in the temple, led there by the Holy Spirit, praying, prophesying, doing as God commanded. When a young couple walk in with a baby, you know, they're pushing him in a stroller or whatever it was. I, I don't, he's probably wrapped on Mary now that I think about it. But this couple walks in, and the Holy Spirit, in some way, points them that baby is the hope of the world. And Simeon picks him up 
don't know why Mary and Joseph let him, I'm just thinking of this now, why did Mary and Joseph let him pick him up, right? Like, if I was going to the temple, and I, like, you know, had my baby, and, like, this old guy is just at the temple being like, this is the baby, and be like, no, don't touch my baby. But they, they let him, and he picks him up, and he sings this song. He says, my eyes have seen your salvation, right? Jesus, remember, his name means salvation. Simeon held God's salvation in his arms, and he says, Master, now I can depart in peace because the time has come. The redemption that we've been waiting for, the fixing of the world that we've talked about so many in, the, uh, in, in so many of the past weeks, right? God's promises to Abraham that he, through one of Abraham's descendants, this baby, this salvation that's in his arms, through Abraham's descendants, he's going to bring blessing to the entire world in order to fix the sin and the death and the brokenness that Adam and Eve brought on God's perfect creation. This is the baby. The waiting time has been fulfilled, and salvation is here. God's blessing, God's redemption is not just going to be for Israel, as Simeon says in verse 32. He says, glory for your people Israel, but also a light for the revelation to the Gentiles, this blessing of the world that we've been waiting for, for God to bring in all peoples into his chosen people. That day is here, and this baby will accomplish it. Simeon held salvation embodied. But it's worth considering. It's worth pointing out. It's worth remembering. Did Simeon see God's full redemption? A little bit of a trick question. Did Simeon see God's full redemption? No, he didn't, right? Because he still died. He still tasted death. And one day, we trust and we believe that Jesus Christ, right, this baby that Simeon held, will undo death itself. He will cast death itself into the lake of fire. He will raise from the dead all of those who believe in and trust in his name. But that day has not come yet. The redemption, the full redemption is in the future. But he held a foretaste of that. He got a glimpse of what was coming. He got the down payment, and he held that baby in his arms, and he died. He still succumbed to the curse that Adam and Eve brought onto the world. That still happened. He never saw Jesus' ministry of healing people and raising the dead and bringing reconciliation to the world. He never saw Jesus die on the cross. He never saw Jesus rise from the dead three days after that. And he certainly hasn't lived, because it's been 2,000 years, he certainly hasn't lived until the day that one day Jesus comes back to establish his kingdom on this earth. We don't know how long Simeon lived, but he was, you know, up there in years, probably wasn't all that long. Jesus was probably still a young child, when he went home. But he got a foretaste of what was coming. And so he says, Lord, you are letting your servant depart in peace. There's a question that's been on the front of my mind, and it may have been on the front of your mind over the last several days. We as a community lost a brother in Christ this week. 
unexpectedly. You know, out of, you know, it's seemingly, seemingly ill time. David Haney was 70 years old. He wasn't, you know, sick in a way that we would, that we would think. He didn't have cancer. He didn't have heart disease. It was just one of those things that just happens. Sometimes God just calls you to be with him. And sometimes it happens unexpectedly. And it's worth asking, in the wake of an event like this, can we die in peace? And if we, if we can, if it's possible, how do we die in peace? This is one of those things that, you know, it's a little bit uncomfortable to talk about and to think about. But it's something that we all will face someday, whether it's this afternoon as we drive home from lunch, whether it's in 30 years after God has granted us that amount of time, we all will face this question, can we die in peace? How can we die in peace? And sometimes we're, you know, we're, we're deluded into thinking that death is the way it's supposed to be. I want to push back on that. It's not. Death is not God's intention. It's not a natural part of life. It is an imposition, a wicked imposition on God's good creation. God created Adam and Eve intending them to live forever, right? He says, hey, here's the fruit of the tree of life. Eat as much as you want from it. Don't, you know, rebel against my commands. Don't go and do what you're not supposed to do, but just say, eat the fruit that you're supposed to eat and live forever. Sin never had to come into the world, but it did. And with sin came death, and so now we taste this. And one day we look forward to the day, right? Just like Simeon and Anna looked forward to the day, that death itself will be no more, and the, the, um, the dead who are in Christ will be, will be raised from the dead. We look forward to that. But that day isn't here. We still have the curse of sin in and among us. We still experience death because we are still waiting for full redemption. But we can still taste redemption. Simeon never saw God's full redemption come to fruition. But he held salvation in his hands. He got to see and hold the baby who would die for the sins of the world and, be, and raise again from the dead in order to bring us to God. He got a glimpse and a foretaste of that. We, as well, can get a glimpse and a foretaste of that new creation, of that redemption that's coming. We can have that personally in our hearts as we experience forgiveness of sins, as we experience communion with God as we go throughout our days and spend each day, each little moment in prayer, just in a passive dwelling with God sense as we are aware that he is with us as we go throughout our days. We can experience that, and it can be sweet as we spend time reading God's word for us throughout the week, as we spend time in prayer, as we spend time in constant fellowship with him, we can experience a little foretaste of what's coming. We can experience that foretaste in what we're doing here. Right? This church, and we talked a lot about this as we went through Ephesians earlier this year, but this church, just like every church, is an outpost of the new creation that's coming. It's a little pocket of the new reality that's coming. So when we enter here, we live by different rules, right? We love our enemies, not just our neighbors as ourselves, but we 
We do good for those who do, do bad for us. That's not the culture of the world. That's not the culture of out there. Our culture, our way of life in here is different than out there. This is a little pocket of the new creation that's coming. And when we enter the sanctuary of God on a Sunday morning, we experience God in a way that we can't experience other places and in other ways. We hear the word of God preached. We take communion and experience God's presence in that way. We experience joyful worship because of what we do on Sunday mornings, because we gather together. And just as Simeon held the baby Jesus in his hands, he got a foretaste of what was coming, so we can get a foretaste of what's coming. We can experience a little bit of it in advance. As we are waiting for the new creation that's coming, we can get a glimpse of it here and now. As we have our sins forgiven, as we live life, in gospel community with each other. You get a little taste of what's coming. And even though we are still longing for redemption, we are still waiting for this world to be fixed. When the time comes for us to die, if the Lord tarries, and I should note that Jesus could come back now and we could never taste death, and that would be amazing, and I want that to happen. But if the Lord tarries, as he has for the last 2,000 years, and we taste death, whether it's this afternoon, whether it's in 30 years, we can die in peace. Because we have tasted. Because we have seen the Lord's Christ at work in our church community, at work in our lives. Take heart, Christian. As we wait for that day, know that we can depart in peace. Will you pray with me?